Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now is Michael Purvis, Whedon & Co. Chief Global Strategist and Head of Equity Derivatives. Michael, good morning to you, sir. It doesn't sound like two countries gunning for a trade war, does it? Not at all. I mean, it, it is a it's a curious uh, uh, thing to for for Trump to be offering up if he wants to uh, you know reduce the trade war uh, uh, clouds and have them fade from the horizon. Uh, uh, I think just you know given how sensitive that that uh, company has been from a national security point of view, um, but certainly you know when you when you, when you see uh, you know Mnuchin's going to be uh, 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 you know hanging out with the vice premier of China and all that, it does look like uh, you know sort of a budding uh, bromance, if you will, um, b- between uh, uh, these two countries. And, and that's obviously uh, a very, you know, that, that's one less worry factor for the markets. Uh, we all saw the tweet from the President of the United States. President Xi of China and I are working together to give massive Chinese phone company ZTE a way to get back into business fast. Too many jobs in China lost. Commerce Department has been instructed to get it done. Still trying to work out what get it done Means, as you say, Michael, this is a, a company that has been a national security issue, that the Republicans themselves were quite firm with uh, President Obama and his administration for not doing enough around this company. And now it seems like it's a, uh, a bargaining chip in a broader issue. Right. Uh, you, you know, it's it's, uh, you know, weaving specific corporate situations into foreign policy is always is always a tricky path there. But but uh, this one, especially so given, you know, it will be interesting to see how how the uh, more mainstream Republicans, you know, react to that, let alone the Democrats. Waking up this morning to kind of strip out the nuances of ZTE and what's happening with uh, various companies and how transactional this seems to be. You'd have to say, Michael, if this was your key risk for 2018, the idea that a trade war was going to unfold between China and the United States. These headlines are somewhat bullish, aren't they? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as we're talking about it, it's it's, it's one less uh, sort of risk to um, uh, to worry about. I, I personally was never uh, looked at the trade wars as being, um, and I'm not sure anyone really did as being, you know, um, the the most dominant or or most uh, palpable risk for the markets this year. Certainly, obviously, something to be monitoring there. But uh, you know, I think in the back of a lot of people's minds, people thought it would be. A lot of a lot of uh, bark and, and probably a lot less bite as he got in down into the granular details and and but with you know with this news breaking over the weekend it certainly seems right. uh, um, perhaps even less so yes Michael Purvis with us with Whedon is uh, well Michael I literally name VIX charts Purvis charts you are a great student of the VIX what is the distinctive feature of a VIX twenty two to thirteen this time around is it correlated to equities that's the spot the present vix versus future vixes what's the pro nuance in this move i I think what's really defined the vix uh over the last several weeks um is is how it has been behaving relative to the other vixes tom in other words there's a vix for the russell 2000 the small caps there's a vix for euro stocks a vix for there's the 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 pharaoh vix right (laughs) there's always the pharaoh vix uh there there's also uh you know a bunch of volatility metrics across assets there's a vix for the ndx which is really kind of tracks the 
uh, much more sensitive to the the, the, uh, the the big tech companies. And what I find fascinating right now is that if you look at, t- typically the VIX trades at a discount to most of these other VIXs. But if you look at it recently, it's actually trading, it's been trading at a pretty consistent premium or at least at very historical levels relative to the other ones. The one, the one other VIX that it's not trading at a premium to is the uh, what's called the VXN or the VIX for the NDX. Yeah. And what that is telling me is that this, you know, higher VIX range is really not about. It's really not about a you know um, uh, interest rates uh, you know spi- spiraling ever higher. Um, it's really about what happened, um, you know, back with uh, this this Facebook uh, uh, Cambridge Analytical scandal several weeks back, and whether the markets were going to re-rate Facebook and its peers and Fang and th- for that matter in tech lower there, and that's why you know the, the the two big outperformers from the vol side have been the VIX and this and this and this VIX for the NDX. I think that's what you're seeing is is that those clouds are fading and that's allowing the VIX to you know so, crash through 15 so, so and so forth. So this is a really interesting point. So we had the vol blow up of February where these short volatility pro- products completely failed. And a lot of people said we're moving into a regime of higher volatility. We couldn't possibly go back to 2017. World's going to end. Because what was going to happen, Tom? The world was going to end. We couldn't end. possibly go back to the vol levels of 2017. But if the question is, and the premise, your premise right now is that this was a tech story, then I'll ask the question again. Can we go back to the lower volatility range of, of 2017? I, I think I think it is a... I, look, 2017 was distinguished by having the lowest realized volatility on, in decades um, uh, and, 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 and more VIX nine prints than any other year in the, in the, uh, in the VIX's history. We even had a few ticks uh, below nine in early January. Getting back to those levels, I think, is a real push, uh, if, if for no other reason that we do have higher interest rates. And I, I, you, you can't be dismissive of higher interest rates in the volatility story. I just think that what's dominant right now is the tech the tech situation there. But, um, uh, you know, if we could we see 12s and 13s? Uh, absolutely. And I mean, we're, we're, we are seeing 12s well, we and 13s. We saw 12 of the clothes right. on Friday. And, and, and so could we see a lot more of this sort of, uh, let's call it, you know, 11, 12 to 15 rather than sort of 15 to 20 yeah. going forward? Yeah. I mean, I think that's really a function of whether that Ultimately, whether that tech dip gets bought, that the the, the uh, y- you know if if yeah. I, I've been arguing, Tom, that that so goes tech, uh, and particularly Fang, so goes the um, the SPX, and so goes the VIX. It's an incredibly it's it's become absolutely integrated into the overall U.S. Yeah. equity story. As a strategist standpoint, what do you make of oil? Seventy six sixty Brent up to seventy seven thirty nine in two cups of coffee this morning. Obviously, the backdrop here, out on the social feed and the various news agencies, is what's going on in Gaza. I've got seven Palestinians killed, nine Palestinians killed, according to CNN International. Reuters has ten, uh, even. And folks, I'm very unsure what that number is. That's just what we're seeing uh, within the feed right now. There's geopolitical risk out there. Do you have a point in your head where a certain Brent price or West Texas intermediate price gets Michael Purvis's attention? Well, I, I think the move that we're, we've are we all been looking for, and even if some of this uh, Middle East headlines were not there, uh, particularly, you know, the, the Gaza headlines, uh, I, I think people sort of feel that there's enough uh, momentum right now. Uh, you t- take out seventy; that paint that paints a path towards eighty pretty well. 
I know there's a lot of calls out there for a hundred, and I'm not an oil expert by any stretch, but I, I would say that that um, I think you know getting a, above eighty on WTI does seem like that's a lot of work to do. You're going to need yeah. something more than just yeah. uh, some Gaza headlines and, and, and Iran um, yeah. to get there. There's a lot of uh, technical resistance at the $80 level there. But but look, you know, the, I mean, what's still striking is that we're talking about, se- you know, $70 right. crude, right? I mean, who would have guessed, you know, six months ago, nine months ago? Very few yeah. people were out there on that. You know, $26 was not that long ago. This is great. Courier dude showed up today. Michael Purvis showed up. Uh, in, did you ride a bicycle in, in the rain? I I I I, I, I I bike as much as I can. You yeah. like live two blocks away, so you just <laughs> <I> That's <laughs> the healthy option. Michael it's, Purvis. It's, it's the fastest way to get around town. It's, it's been great to we know that for you, sure. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Michael Purvis, Weedman Co. Chief you. Global Strategist and Head of Equity Derivatives to Top Point. I got a point. package that I got to get over near the Hilton Hotel. a couple of themes here. Isaac Voltansky with us uh, with Compass Point. I uh, really did dive into just sort of the news flow of the week. Isaac, um, a really, really strong supporter of my work in well over a decade has been Richard Clarida, who is going to be up front in the beauty contest tomorrow morning for the Senate Banking Committee to replace Stanley Fisher as the PhD type is vice chairman of the Fed. Dr. Clarida, folks, of always associated with Columbia University, has written definitive work on dynamic stochastic general equilibrium theory. There'll be a quiz at the end of this uh, can, section can we, as well. Can we skip the Isaac, quiz? Uh, Isaac, <laughs> let's, so we don't do DSGE theory on a Monday morning. Who is Richard Clarida and why will you lean forward during his testimony tomorrow? I think Richard uh, Claret is going to be seen as uh, the uh, center of economic heft on the Federal Reserve Board under uh, President Donald Trump. And uh, one of the viewpoints here in D.C. has been that uh, Chairman Powell is more of a uh, has more markets experience and not as much uh, economic background. And so the Trump White House was clearly and I think undeniably looking for uh, someone to sit in that vice chairman's role, that number two spot, who has written papers like the one that you just discussed and who can delve deeply with the staff there on economic theory. And so I think the hearing tomorrow, which will actually include um, both uh, Richard Clarida and Michelle Bowman, who is also nominated to the board, she's nominated for a spot that's reserved for someone with community banking expertise. I think that the focus is going to be on uh, Mr. Clarida because yeah. he is seen as one of these pillars of economic thought for the uh, for the Powell Federal Reserve. Isaac, I have to say, out of all the things that we've wasted our time talking about since November 2016, um, the Federal Reserve under this administration is one of them. I lost count over how many economists were worried about the replacements filling the seats on the Federal Reserve that would be nominated by this administration, when actually looking back on it, they've been really mainstream candidates. This administration has, has, has filled the, uh, the empty seats of the Federal Reserve with some, with some fantastic names, nothing controversial about it. I think you hit the nail on the head there. Look, this this Federal Reserve Board, at least the members that we have so far, are centrist and pragmatist. 
Now, part of that is the realization that it is hard to get someone through the Senate still. The average length of confirming someone for those individuals who uh, are, are lucky enough to be confirmed is about 80 or so days right now in the U.S. Senate. And that's the longest, at least out of, that I've counted, out of the past uh, five administrations. So it takes a considerable yeah. amount of time. And so part of that is is the realities of the Senate. But I think part of it is the Trump administration's acceptance of the importance of the economy within their broader storyline. And you can't mess around with the Fed right. if the economy is going to be part of your, your uh, political storyline. If you're just joining us, I guess Nick Boltanski with his compass point out of Ohio Wesley and a really good feeling for the nite grite of Washington, D.C. Isaac, John Swanner, uh, Mike Allen, I can't remember who wrote it, talked about the exhaustion in the few members of the Trump team on trade. That's not only China, 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 like we have in the headlines this morning, but also NAFTA as well. How thinly staffed is the Trump trade team? I think it's something that I've noticed over the past few months. When you walk around some of these buildings, uh, whether it's the Commerce Department or the Treasury or uh, any of the other major agencies, you see that there are a lot of empty offices. And that has a toll. And the U.S., especially on trade, is facing battles on a number of fronts. And these battles take up hundreds and thousands of pages of paper. Okay, so how does... Yeah, I don't mean to interrupt, but just because of time, how does Canada and Mexico adapt to the fact we have an exhausted NAFTA team? Well, I think the the positive here is the uh, deadline, albeit a somewhat squishy deadline on May 17th to yeah. get a NAFTA deal announcement. And look, deadlines are are able to catalyze action in D.C. more so than anything else. So yes, the NAFTA team is tired, but I think Speaker Ryan say, setting a quasi-deadline of May 17th for a deal announcement in NAFTA yeah. is going to catalyze movement here in D.C. And this, of course, needs to happen. The deadlines need to be hit in and thereabouts because the uh, midterms are coming up, Isaac, so they need a deal before that. I want you to help um, sort of translate something for me. The president tweeting the following. President Xi of China and I are working together to give massive Chinese phone company ZTE a way to get back into business fast. Too many jobs in China lost. Commerce Department has been instructed to get it done. ZTE, Isaac, was a national security issue. For good reasons, a blockade was put on it. What does it mean when the president turns around and says, I've instructed the Commerce Department to get it done? What happens next? I think, I think there's only one takeaway that you can have from the president's tweet and that, and that policy reversal. It's that the president sees ZTE as a bargaining chip in the broader negotiation between China and the U.S. Okay, Isaac, you're expert on this. Can that happen? I don't have an answer on this Monday morning. Granted, it's news overnight, essentially, and over the weekend. Can you use a sanctioned international offender as a, quote, bargaining chip, unquote? You know, there's a saying that a, a law is only as strong as the most recent Congress, meaning that a Congress can change anything that a previous Congress has done. 
a administrative action is largely as strong as the most recent administration. And so, yes, I think that the president, mm-hmm. as of last night with that tweet, made it clear that ZTE is on the table and it's going to be part of the negotiation between China and U.S. as, as trade talks continue. So trade talks resume this week. The top Chinese economic advisor to President Xi coming over to Washington, D.C. Isaac, attention's actually easing. Is that what you're seeing? And, and what to what extent can we get a deal and what does that deal look like? I think that both sides realize that it is in their own best interest to step back from the cliff, which is part of the reason that I think they will step back from the cliff. The more bargaining chips that we put on the table, and it's clear that the president views ZTE as a bargaining chip, the more of those that we have on the table, the easier it is to craft a face-saving deal that will at least get us back to the trade detente that we had uh, only a few months ago. Isaac, one final question, uh, if we could. We're following Gaza, the news out of Gaza. Folks, I want to be very careful about the news flow there. Michael Barr in New York and our other team uh, across the nation will have updates on that within minutes. But Isaac, the, the, the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem, we had Michael Arnott of Israel on, our, our head of all of our Israel and Palestinian coverage. He was great. How does this play in the Beltway? How, how does the move of this embassy play in your Washington Beltway? You know, it's difficult to tell at the moment, uh, especially given the headlines that, that we're seeing cross. And, and I want to be careful as well. But I can tell you those uh, policy experts that, that I follow generally view this as more of a symbolic move than a substantive move. But as we know, in foreign affairs, symbolism matters. Yeah. And so um, I think at the moment, everyone is just watching to see what happens more so than anything else. Isaac Boltanski, thank you so much. Great update. Wide, wide ranging. Wide, I'll get it out, John. Three, two, one. Wide ranging update. That's Very much trying so. to go. Uh, with Compass Point as well. Uh, Stephen Rusciuto with us, who is wonderful to have on. We're trying to slice and dice, well, the American consumer. He is with Mizuo uh, uh, Securities, uh, their chief U.S. economist as well. I guess we'll start with inflation because that's where President Mester was as well. It's certainly not runaway inflation. Is it really higher inflation? Well, I think you've seen a general upward drift in inflation. The question is, what's been the driving factor? I think the driving factor was a 16-month slide in the dollar uh, that eliminated some of the global deflationary pressures uh, from dampening domestic price pressures. And now I think the dollar's turned corner, and I think the upward movement in the dollar will tend to moderate the inflation environment again. And I think that's right. going to be the big surprise for people. My question, Steve, on a Monday is there's a certitude about three or four rate increases. And all my radar go up when I use the word certitude. Everybody's just certain they've got this all figured out. Yeah. Do we? No, it is a real risk factor. I mean, I was one of the first ones who moved from two to four rate hikes. And to be honest with you, I did it with the hope that I'd eventually be the first one to move back from four. Uh, and I continue to look for the data. And that's why I think the retail sales numbers and the housing numbers that we're going to have out this week are very, very critical in that environment. And I think dovetailing on the backdrop of what we saw from benign inflation readings last week, I think those factors could come in to suggest that four may not be necessary. But for right now, it's still our forecast 
podcast, but we're looking for evidence that we think will come through that allows us to move it back and step back from a four rate hike scenario. Fed's back on target, Steve, aren't they? Why do they need to back off? Well, the question is, how far do you need to go before you cause something to go wrong? Um, the curve is flattening rather dramatically. And if you go back and look at the last three long business cycles, the Fed, and they've been long business cycles because inflation didn't manifest themselves, manifest itself. And this time through, it's exactly the same environment. And each time that they continued to push the front end of the curve up, they got into an environment where there was some kind of financial hiccup, which was unnecessary. And I think this is one of the reasons why they should learn from the lessons of three out of three, which is a very, very abnormal normal process in, in an economy to have three times in a row the same thing develop. And I'm afraid that if they continue to push uh, for the four over time, that we'll get to a curve that'll be so flat that it will cause a financial hiccup to occur. Do you think the curve is artificial or is it something to actually pay attention to? And from what I've heard so far, you don't think it's official, so artificial. So why isn't it? I don't think it's artificial because the Fed is unwinding. There's been a big uptick in supply. A number of things that should have pushed the long end of the curve up haven't. There's a global grab for yield. There's a global grab for duration. We saw the announcement over the weekend of a large UK pension fund that's opted to move out into US Treasuries to yeah. grab the yield environment. On one of your own stories, I saw recently that you had a 190 yield on Australian bonds, 0% real yields. I think that's the environment that's grabbing it. Steve Rusciuto, Mizzou, uh, with us this morning. Mr. Rusciuto is with Mizzou, yeah, where he is their chief U.S. economist of, of all things. Uh, Here to help us uh, learn more about what is going on in the Middle East currently is Jonathan Furziger, Bloomberg Middle East politics reporter. And uh, Jonathan, I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of a history lesson to understand how we got to this situation and why the location of the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem is such a contentious issue. Sure. Uh, Jerusalem has resonance for billions of people around the world. Is it Jewish, Christian, Muslim? It uh, is the, the site of some of the holiest uh, places for all the faiths. Um, in, it, now we're going back around 70 years, and the uh, state of Israel is established. The idea was that Jerusalem was going to be a capital for both Israel, a Jewish state, and a Palestinian state. That didn't happen. Uh, Israel um, and the Arab uh, nations uh, around it uh, went into a war. Uh, Israel won. It uh, established the capital. And virtually nobody, no other state in, uh, in the world, very few, uh, recognize it as a capital. So now, 70 years later, uh, Trump has done that. Okay, but but Jonathan, let me just break in and, and understand, because there there was uh, obviously many combatants uh, in that war of 1948, and uh, Jordan uh, was uh, involved in a way that shaped the future of Jerusalem, did it not? Okay, so Jordan in 1948 wound up as the uh, occupying power uh, over uh, Jerusalem and the West Bank. That is half of Jerusalem, East Jerusalem. So the city was split. Uh, it was split until 1967. Jordan uh, had control of it. 
And then in the uh, 1967 war, the Six-Day War, uh, Israel uh, captured East Jerusalem and the West Bank. And they've been in charge since. They've annexed the city. And again, that hasn't been recognized um, by most countries. And at that time, just to be clear, at that time uh, in the old city, because there's the new city in the old city of Jerusalem, there was a Jewish quarter in the old city, and there were expulsions there as well. Yeah, the uh, old city was uh, plundered. Uh, the old city is uh, walled. It has uh, three of the holiest sites in uh, Islam and Judaism and Christianity. Um, and so there was a Jewish section, and uh, those uh, Jews were expelled in 1948. Mm. They came back in 67. Jonathan, how unified is Israel behind Mr. Netanyahu and behind these moments this morning? Uh, Israel is uh, very deeply split. Um, it, it tilts toward Netanyahu. Uh, he uh, gives Israeli a, a sense that he's uh, fighting, that he's standing up. Uh, but uh, especially now with the violence in, in Gaza, um, it's not going down uh, real well, and uh, Israelis are, are, well, are worried. To that point, and I mean this with great respect for uh all uh, in the midst, and I mean, folks, the real-time midst of these protests, is there a limit, is there a hurdle where this protest begins to have resonance with the people of Israel? Or is it, as we've had in the three or four reports this morning, a distraction 50 miles away, which sounds almost cruel? Well, I don't think it's a, a distraction. I think that uh, as the death toll mounts, and it is very quickly today, yes, um, I, people are uh, digesting this, and it will. I mean, your tomorrow's front pages or the internet right now is a mix between uh, the glory of the uh, the U.S. embassy and the the bloodshed in in Gaza. So it's uh, it's a pretty cloudy picture. Jonathan, what has been the reaction of the Palestinian Authority based in the West Bank in Ramallah? Uh, so as soon as uh, President Trump announced uh, the move and the recognition of uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital, this was in December, the Palestinians said that they were pulling out of uh, the peace process or whatever peace process would, started to, uh, to form under, under Trump. Um, since then, they, they've been somewhat removed from the confrontations in uh, Gaza, um, and uh, the West Bank has been, you know, um, comparatively uh, tranquil. Uh, and this is because of uh, Palestinian politics and the split between the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank and uh, Gaza Strip, which is controlled by Hamas. What's the economic situation in Gaza? It's desperate. Uh, it is uh, been awful uh, for the last ten years. Some of the highest unemployment um, and uh, food poverty, and uh, it just it, it's bleak, um, and it's gotten worse. Um, partly, I mean, a, a lot of this derives from the fact that uh, Gaza is surrounded by by fences, is locked in by Israel and Egypt in the south. Uh, so the the question of, uh, of trade um, is is almost off the uh, off the map. I want to thank you very much for joining us, really uh, Jonathan Furziger, yeah. Bloomberg uh, Middle East politics uh, reporter, uh, giving us details about uh, the United States opening its uh, Jerusalem embassy. 
and also dozens mm. uh, killed, uh, dozens dead in as Gaza uh, has uh, confrontations uh, over this uh, U.S. embassy move on the border between uh, Gaza and, you know, and uh, Israel. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.